There we go. These are our three statements. Love your enemies, hate your parents, and cut off your hand. (laughs) Jesus said all those things. Now, for those who are of elementary age today, let me explain a few of these, all right? Love your enemies means that we're supposed to love our enemies, people we don't like. That makes sort of sense, but it's a shocking statement because we're taught growing up that we need to distance ourselves from our enemies, push them off, not be entertaining uh, their interest in our lives because they've harmed us, they do us wrong, they bully us, whatever it may be. But God says to love our enemies. And he spoke that through his son, Jesus Christ, when he gathered a lot of people around him in teaching environments just as this. Now, he also said, hate your parents. Now, the kids are like, huh? I'm glad I came to service today. I've been dealing with that, and I just got affirmation. No, no, no. Jesus was saying that you must have an immense love for him, even far superior than your love for your parents. Your love that you are to have for Jesus Christ in comparison to the love to other people, including your parents, is as if you hate them, but you love Christ. But it really isn't saying Jesus was using hyperbolic language to exaggerate as he was with cut off your hand. Now, I don't want you cutting off your hand today. Now, for those of you who were here last week, some of you had a little bit of cringe factor when I started describing the one guy that had to physically cut off his hand in order to survive when he got trapped by a boulder. And I just want you to know that's not going to happen today. Though some of you are probably wondering, cut off your hand had to do with the whole aspect of uh, if something is causing you to sin, stay away from it. You're probably wondering why we have these sticks on our chairs. We're going to explain that in a little bit. I see a couple people already, kids, who've already grabbed two sticks and they're drumming now. So that's good. No, um, I thought it would be good to have a spanking stick. (laughs) Now now all the kids are going, oh, that's spanking stick. No, like maybe I gave the kids the stick today to smack their parents' hands if they're not paying attention. What do you think about that? No, that's not why I've given you this. We are going to look at what's called a sticky item here in a second. But if you can uh, make uh, yourself available to that stick only when I give reference to it, that would be good. Otherwise, you can put it down, put it by you, under your chair, or whatever. That would be good. He said, what? Love your enemies? Hate your parents? Cut off your hand? Well, today we're going to look at a statement which at first glance may not be that shocking, but as we dive into it, I believe that it is in the culture in which we live. And that is this statement here, do not judge. Do not judge. It comes from Matthew 7, verse 1. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, what did Jesus really mean by this? Are we not supposed to judge? If we're not supposed to judge, then teachers aren't going to give grades. That's sort of judging, don't you think? And uh, bosses are not going to give promotions. That's sort of judging, isn't it? In fact, as you think about it, extending forgiveness to somebody, that would go away too because you have to sort of realize that they've harmed you. You are judging that they've sinned against you in order for you then to offer forgiveness back. 
What did Jesus mean when he said, do not judge or you too will be judged? We had the sad story of the Bill Cosby trial going on in the media this week. And there was a verdict that came in. There was a judgment. If Jesus really meant do not judge or you too will be judged, then all the court system would go away. It's interesting. Have you ever been called for jury duty? Jury duty is a responsibility, but also an opportunity for you as a citizen in this country to be able to gather with others to render justice to an individual. It's interesting in this valley, though. I think, you know, I lived my whole life in the Midwest, and I never got summoned to a jury once. I've been summoned twice in this valley in the few years I've lived here. Every member of my family has been summoned, and Levi, our special needs boy over here, he even got summoned this week. And I'm like, what is the deal with this valley? I guess a lot of people are needing to be judged, right? There's a lot of justice that needs to go out. What did Jesus mean, do not judge, or you too will be judged? This verse, you heard it before? It has now become, I think, the most popular verse in America. It used to be John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not die, but have you know eternal life. Now we hear everybody quoting Matthew 7.1, well, don't judge. And usually where they're going with it is what? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Well, what we're going to see today, it's actually something that uh, is the contrary of that. It doesn't have anything to do with you at all as much as it has to do with others. It is warming up, as Joe mentioned. It's good. More beach time coming. Any of you ever been caught in a um, rip current, scary thing, scary thing. You, you think you're in control and all of a sudden you're not in control. You're being whisked back out into the ocean. Or maybe you've been uh, kayaking down some rapids uh, in a river like Colorado or something and you've fallen out or something and all of a sudden you are out of control. There is a stream of movement that is forcing against you that you cannot sustain yourself against. The reason I felt led to pick this particular supposed shocking statement of Jesus is because we are in a rip current in our culture related to this very subject matter of being able to judge. We live in a culture that is pushing upon us tolerance at every turn. Tolerance. You got to be tolerant. Do not judge them. Everybody is able to do what they can do on their own. Free choice, right? Do not judge. Well, here's Jesus. He's saying the same thing, isn't he? Maybe not. Sort of. Do not judge. The rip current that we're caught in is a part of our culture. And I was thinking, even as we were worshiping this morning, Lord, what do you really want to accomplish with all of us that sort of decided to show up today, including young kids? And I thought, Lord, if today we can walk out of here with a better understanding of the waters that we are in of our culture and know biblically how we are to stand up against that current for your glory and for the sake of others who are caught up in that rip current, then we would have a good morning. 
But you're going to have to dial in with me. You're actually going to have to put on your thinking hat here for a little bit. And young kids, I trust you can put on your thinking hat maybe in a small kind of way. Some of the words you're going to hear, terms you're going to hear in a little bit are like way over your head. They're probably over the head for some of us as adults even in this room. But I think it's important for us to get a hold of what's happening in the cultural waters that are pressing against us because the current is moving quickly and our world is changing quickly. So quickly. So here's some words that has to do with worldview. And the worldview is the lens through which we see our world, but not only see our world, but experience our world and make judgments, if you will, in our world. And so for us to do a little bit of backdrop before we dive into the Matthew 7 passage, I want us to look at the drift towards a worldview of relative truth and the mantra of tolerance. The drift towards a worldview of relative truth and the mantra of tolerance. And the worldview of relative truth means that there is no truth. It's all relative according to you or what the next person beside you wants it to be true. And then the mantra we hear time and time again in culture, in, 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 in the songs that we listen to, in the movies that we watch maybe, in, in the uh, judgments that are being made even around us is tolerance. Just be tolerant. But what's happened in our culture is this push towards tolerance has actually led to non-tolerance. Intolerance really is the underbelly of this push towards a worldview of tolerance. All right, hang with me. So we have three worldviews. These worldviews have been succinctly moving one to another in the past couple centuries of uh, humanity. The first is the pre-modern worldview. The second is modern, and the third is the postmodern. Premodernism, modernism, postmodernism. Maybe you've heard of postmodernism. We are in a postmodernism culture, but we need to move back to premodern. In the premodern culture, there was a belief in divinity. There was a belief in divinity that, that if not just a single God, that there were gods. There was something beyond us as human beings. And there was a conviction that um, there, there was the virtue of conviction was upheld. What do you know to be true? That's important. What truth is. And you hold to your conviction about truth. And tolerance, just letting whatever willy-nilly happen in the world, is evil. The authority is God in a pre-modern worldview. And change is brought about by adherence to the standard. What standard? The biblical standard. The standard of, of God's word. Now, I can be pushed back against saying, okay, uh, what about other parts of the world, this or that? We're talking about the Western world here in particular. But there was the belief that there was a God and that that God had standards. And virtue was defined by living up to what would be those standards. All right? Then the modern worldview came about with the Enlightenment and some other kinds of uh, seasons of life, Renaissance, whatever. And ambivalence towards divinity started to become the norm. Well, yeah, God there, maybe some other people. But, you know, it's really science and reason that sees the day. And so rationality, using the mind, was going to move its way to finding some type of uh, virtuous truths that you could sort of live by. Authority is logical. It has to be proven through science to be able to be real. And change was brought about by whatever is rational. 
And so the pre-modern world gave rise to the modern world pretty quick. But even quicker has been the movement to a postmodern world. And in the postmodern world, divinity is self-expression. Well, God is whatever I sense, and God is within me. I don't believe that there is a God, all right, as far as one true outside supreme being that created all things. And tolerance has become the virtue. So whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me, all right? And conviction, if you've got convictions, deep-rooted convictions, well, you're just dogmatic and you're judgmental. Authority. Authority is found in self or by a group of people. And change is contingent on self-expression and culture moving forward. All right, you got those three worldviews? We are caught in a rip current of our culture moving from pre-modernism to modernism. We're now into post-modernism, though there's fragments of modernism still hanging around. Because what you're seeing on a daily basis in the news, what you're experiencing in your schools, what you're experiencing in the workplace, that's culture. And culture is pressing against you certain mindsets and ways of thinking. And it's maybe something you have full agreement with. Or maybe something you push back against. It's like, I really tolerant. I'm supposed to be accepting of every lifestyle now? including this whole gender issue that's going on? Is this what's supposed to happen? I thought it was interesting this last week. I didn't dive into reading anything about it, but I saw the headline of an MSNBC um, um, person, and uh, they were trying to be apologetic for stuff that they wrote concerning sexuality issues back a number of years ago on social media or something. And they were giving her a very hard time. And she said the comment, I can't even believe that I actually would have written those things back then concerning lifestyles. Well, part of what she's caught up in is she's caught up in the current of postmodernism. And she is trying to reconcile what she said in prior years, though she had those convictions maybe, with what's now the accepted norm in our culture. I can't carry these convictions about sexuality issues and now live in this current culture because uh, it's changed. Do you feel the tension? Do you feel problems in your own life trying to defend what you believe, trying to defend what you believe biblically? And then somebody comes up to you and says, well, don't judge, don't judge. You know, Jesus even said, do not judge, do not judge. Just be tolerant, let everything go, everything's good. We're in a bad place as a culture and as a nation. And that's why my prayer this morning was, Lord, if we can all walk out of here with a right-sizing understanding of the culture in which we live and understand biblically what Jesus is calling and teaching us to do, at least there's a group of people that are represented in this room that are shining some light this week. Do you have a conviction to stand up in our world and be able to be a beacon of light in that reckless love of God that we sang about? Or do you just want to drift along with no impact? You're going to have to put your thinking hat on because part of it has to do with us understanding with the mind as well as with the convictions of the heart. And as we articulate to others what's happening, maybe they too will see the light and they too 
can come to know God in a beautiful way. There's three possible cultures related to ethics. I think this originally came from Paul Tillich. These are big words. Hang with me. This is going to help you with your thinking hat today. There's a theonomous culture. Theos means God. Nomos means law. God's law is so self-evident within these cultures, within the human heart, that there are some imperatives within you and I that find a consensus in society, what's referred to as natural law. There's a rightness, and we know that rightness because there is a God-centeredness that there is something that organically comes to us from the world that says this is right and this is wrong, all right? Theonomous culture. Then there is a heteronymous culture. Heteros means another. Two distinct sets of law and operation, the controlling few and the masses underneath. It dictates that dictates come from the few above, whether you like it or not. You could put Islam and you could put Marxism or communism in this category. So in Islam, there is Lama or the Imam, Imam that decides sort of what the dictates of truth need to be. So they're up here and the rest of the people are down here and they have to live with those dictates, with that law. All right? Same way in communism, Marxism. The elite few get to decide what's true. And then those who are underneath, they have to live according to that. Then there's autonomous culture. culture. Autos means self. A self-law, a law unto yourself. You follow your individual autonomy and give persons. And each person has the freedom to believe and establish their own law or decrees. Now. Is the United States a theonomous culture? No. It maybe used to lean more that direction. All right? Is the United States a heteronymous culture? There's a few dictating to others. Or is the United States an autonomous culture? It would be autonomous. At least that's what we're aspiring to. But the reason you just said it was the second, Ron, is because what happens in our autonomous culture is that we give autonomy to everybody to make their own law unto themselves. You decide what's right. You decide what's wrong. You go and do, don't judge me, that kind of stuff. But something happens in this. If you come along with the conviction that there is a God, that there is law, that there is rule, that there are rights and wrongs, guess what happens to you in that kind of culture? It moves, it flips from autonomous culture to a heteronymous culture. In other words, you are wrong. You can't do that. You can't believe that way. If you believe that way, you're not being tolerant. This is why the whole thing, subject of tolerance is actually intolerant. People preach tolerance until they come up against that which they're intolerant with. And they're intolerant with people that are theonomous, believing that there's a God who has natural law and dictates things to us. And so we have this wrestling match going on, this mudslinging going on. You see it in the news all the time. You see it in our politics. It's like, what is happening? I'm caught up in this rip current. Things are going crazy in our culture. There's movement. There's movement 
from pre-modernism to modernism to post-modernism. And in the post-modernism, cultural aspects of things. We want to speak as if we're an autonomous culture. But in reality, we're not when there comes to issues of truth. Now, the autonomous culture is fine as long as everybody remains at a place where they let you have convictions and speak your truth without slamming you, putting you down, telling you that you're a bigot or you're prejudiced on whatever subject matter it may be. But a lot of times they don't go there because God's at work even in the midst of Satan trying to destroy our world, our country. Do not judge lest you be judged. Shocking statement of Jesus. Jesus, would you stand up and say that in our world when we see it broken like it is? It's crazy. There's rebels on every turn. There's skeptics on every turn. It's a crazy culture. I want to read for you. You got to keep your thinking hat on here. Then we're going to move on. You can take it off partially in a little bit. Don't worry. I want to read for you a couple paragraph quote from G.K. Chesterton, great Catholic theologian, philosopher. He wrote this called The Infinite Skeptic. So you combine what we talked about with worldviews, with these different kinds of cultures, what's happening in the midst of it all. But the new rebel is a skeptic. And will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty. Therefore, he can never be really a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in the way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. And the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. Thus, he writes one book complaining that imperial oppression insults the purity of women. And then he writes another book in which he insults it himself. He he curses the sultan because Christian girls lose lose their virginity and then curses Mrs. Grundy because they keep it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life and then as a philosopher that all life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a pheasant and then prove by the largest, by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. A man denounces marriage as a lie and then denounces aristocratic profligates for treating it as a lie. He calls a flag a bauble and then blames the oppressors of Poland and Ireland because they take away the bauble. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. His book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attracts morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. A lot of confusion. So what does Jesus say into this? Does he really say, do not judge, just be passive, just be caught up in the drifting currents? 
let our culture go by the wayside. I'll protect our little home here with our kids and our home. And I'll live as a foxhole Christian. And I'll go from one place to another and just be around people that think like-minded. Or does Jesus call us to engage our culture and engage it with a mindset and a heart set of love, but yet also one of justice and rule? You see, in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 11, 13, the Apostle Paul said this, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Now, what's happening here is in this particular church, there's corruption, there's bad things going on, there's evil people that are trying to bring the church down in that city. And Paul's saying that you need to have judgment within a household and the evil person needs to be taken out. Don't worry about the outside world in the moment. God's the judge and he's going to deal with that appropriately. But here's the Apostle Paul seemingly going against what Jesus was saying and do not judge, at least from that one statement in Matthew 7, 1. He's saying that you and I ought to have judgment. We ought to have discernment with what is evil. And in our church, as well as in the world itself, there is discernment that you and I need to bring. We need to be tolerant and loving and compassionate and caring because Jesus brought a reckless love. But at the same time, we cannot mince what truth issues are and allow ourselves to be bullied over by people who say that we can have no convictions and there is no absolute truth. Isn't it interesting, I say this before, when someone makes a statement, there's no absolute truth, it's a self-defeating statement, right? There is no absolute truth except that one statement you just made to me now. We believe in absolute truth, all right? Even if you got into Eastern religions and things, there's a whole thing of the law of logic and there's the both and and those kinds of logics as well as the either or. And the reality is we have wired within us what is eternal and that is that there is truth. There is right and wrong. All right? Scripture as a whole, you have to take it. And it's encouraging us to make rightful discerning judgment. But what Jesus is saying here needs to have fuller context, right? You just don't take a sentence out of context. That's my favorite verse. Do not judge. Do not judge me. Let me do what I want to do, right? No, not quite. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, he seems to be talking not about discarding discernment and judgment, but that there is judgment at hand, but how you go about judging is the issue. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. He used strong language, by the way, if you didn't think Jesus didn't. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I think all of us have probably been in this situation. You've been eating at a table with some friends or maybe somebody you don't personally know. 
right? And you're having a great conversation. You get up, you leave that conversation, you head home, you look in the rearview mirror, and guess what? There is something hanging on your face or stuck in your teeth. And you think to yourself, what? Oh my gosh, how long has that been there? Was it there for the whole hour conversation that I had with that person? Why didn't they say something? Oh my, how embarrassing is that? Friends, if that ever happens to me while I'm with you, just say, Carrie, you need to go to the bathroom and clean out your teeth. Or, Carrie, there's something right here. Just deal with it, right? We want somebody to, you know, maybe, but we're embarrassed that it's there. Well, what we have today, Jesus is saying, is a bunch of nitpicky people going around going, oh, looky there. Oh, looky there. You got a little little crumb there. Some of you have crumbs there because you had donuts or something this morning, right? Yeah, crumb. They go, wipe that little crumb off there. And the person's looking at you going, what? What? You got a whole banana peel hanging on the side of your mouth. And you're telling me to get rid of that little flake? Come on now. And so Jesus stands up. He's in front of the masses. And he says, do not judge lest you be judged. We're going to explain that in a second. But he says, you people, look at what you're doing from day to day. This isn't about you. It's about other people. Look what you're doing to them. And you're going out and, you know, you, you, you have this little speck, maybe, uh, that you're trying to get out of their eye. And, and we don't have it. But, you know, he pulls up a big two by four. And he says, but you got this Plank sticking out of your own head. Now you may know why you have a piece of wood on your chair today. And you can pick up your piece of wood. And on your piece of wood, you can write this verse. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 if you want. You can get a marker back at the back later today so it's bigger. And you can stick it around your house somehow. Because this is what Jesus is saying. You hypocrite, first take the plank... That's sticking straight out of your eye. Let's do that. You got that? You got your piece of wood? Put it up by your eye. Don't poke your eye, kids. All right, that's good. You got this plank. Hold it there. Come on. Entertain me a little bit. All right, come on. It's The kids are with us today. You got a plank sticking out of your eye. Now I want you to turn and look at the other person beside you. All right? Don't hurt them. All right? You got the plank sticking out of your eye. And you're out nitpicking the little specks. You can put it down now. That's great. You got the illustration, right? They call this a sticky item. Hopefully the message will stick with you more when you leave here by taking the thing with you. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It's what we just read through. It's the shocking statement of Jesus. Do not judge. Do not judge does not mean that we are not to have discernment. That we are to live drifting along in a culture of relative truth. Just get along. It has to do with how we treat other people when we're trying to bring discernment to them. And friends, this is a problem for us as Christian believers. If you're a Christ follower today. And if you're not a Christ follower today, you're probably saying to yourself, yep. You hit that one on the head, Carrie. Christians, a bunch of judgmental people, man. Tell me to do, not do stuff. Then you're going to throw out, well, they're hypocrites. Because they're talking about a little speck in my eye. They got a big old plank sticking out of their eye. Forget it all. It was a problem then. It's a problem now. It's not that we're not to have discernment, that there's not absolute truth for us to pursue. That there's not a God who, who writes natural law into our world. Not to kill us and destroy us. But to bring freedom and hope. 
But how we go about treating one another in this area of judgment and discernment is a major problem. And as our culture gets more heated up in postmodernism, we're going to have to have multiple Sundays talking about this because it's not going to be easy to leave, to lead and to love with grace in our world. Who is the judge? Jesus is the judge. You're not the judge. Second Timothy four eight says Jesus is the righteous judge. John one fourteen says Jesus is full of grace and truth. John sixteen thirty says Jesus knows all things. John seven twenty four Jesus does not judge by appearances, but judges with right judgment. He knows. In 1 John 4, 8, every judgment Jesus pronounces issues from his core of a loving nature. These are truths that Scripture teaches us concerning Jesus as the judge. And so one of the first things I think that's helpful to do is just sort of set aside that you need to be the judge. There is a judge. And all wrongs will be made right. The Holy Spirit is at hand and the Holy Spirit, it says, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. So guess what? Your job. You might say, well, my job is to participate with the Holy Spirit and I'm going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. Well, your job is to participate with the Holy Spirit. That's true. But it's not your job to bring the conviction. It's the Holy Spirit's job. So that's good news. Because some of you have been taken on the assignment and maybe it's with a coworker, maybe with a family member. You're trying to bring judgment and get them to reckon with their problem. Well, you need to have good conversation. You need to be able to have that conversation, be in a relationship of trust where you can have those things and, and, and dialogue. The Holy Spirit's at work in every person's life in this room. Even if you're in this room and going, I don't want him not work in my life. He's at work in your life. Jesus Christ died for all people. He desires that all would be saved. He wants everybody to find freedom and hope and truth that's found in him. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life. The Holy Spirit's at work in everybody's life, even if they're in the darkest, deepest pit and they've really messed up even this last week. The Holy Spirit's at work. So we participate in being able to love others and direct them without losing conviction and holding to what is true. Because ultimately, if you get a little wimpy and wheezy on the whole thing of uh, truth issues, if you just sort of bask and, oh, everything's tolerant, then they're never going to find their way to that which ultimately brings freedom and truth. So you have to have the conviction. But it's how you go about this effort with people. I like how the message puts it. You know, the message is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. He says it this way. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Well put. 
Nice little explanation on that. This is how I like to interpret that shocking statement of Jesus. Judge not, lest you be judged. He's really saying this. Judge others in the same manner as you would want to be judged. Take the plank out of your eye. Look at what's going on inside of you. And as you bring discernment and judgment, if you will, to what needs to be stated as right or wrong, then you do it in a manner in which you yourself would want to be judged. Judge others in the same manner as you would want to be judged. It's a biblical exhortation to counter human tendency to ignore one's own faults while needling others about theirs. The command is against a critical spirit, not against the exercise of a critical faculty of discernment. Do we need to say that together again? All right. It's, it's not against the, it's a, the critical factor of discernment, but the critical spirit by which you carry it to others. In other words, over this, there's a flashing sign, neon sign that says, caution, judge at your own risk. Judge others. Only in the manner in which you would want to be judged according to God's law and what truth is. I'm just going to read through a list that was uh, presented by an individual that I like. Some ways we break the command not to judge. Got to make it practical, right? Kids, you can join back in on this because some of these might relate. Blowing small things out of proportion, maximizing the sins of others, their faults, their foibles, and their petty ways. Coming to quick, hasty, negative conclusions. Making mountains out of molehills. Getting involved in situations where we shouldn't be involved. Passing along critical stories to others. Having a too strong bias uh, to find others guilty. Being too harsh even when speaking the truth. Adding aggravating remarks when telling a story. Some other ways that we break it. Dismissing an unkind remark by saying, oh, I was only joking. Saying something critical and then trying to cover it up. Being unkind and then quickly changing the subject. Telling too many people about what others have done to us. Ooh. Taking pleasure in condemning others. Telling the truth in order to hurt, not to help. Putting others down in order to make others look better. And minimizing our sins while magnifying the sins of others. We do it in such subtle ways. What do we need to do instead? Before you and I speak, maybe you've seen this acrostic. Kids, this is a good one. You can use this at your dinner table. Is what I'm about to say around this dinner table true, helpful, insightful, interesting, necessary, and kind? T-H-I-N-K. If it's not one of those five things, then just eat in silence. (laughs) How's that? Is this true? Is this helpful? Is this insightful, interesting? Is this necessary? That's mine a lot of time. Is this necessary? Is it kind? John 7.24 says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Friends, Jesus said those words too. So that tells you what about the Matthew passage. It wasn't that we shouldn't bring judgment on what's right and wrong in a culture that needs to know truth. He says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So here's just four encouragements. Be charitably quick to believe innocence. There was accusation in the last few weeks that's thrown out concerning some potential sexual harassment that a, a major 
pastor in the Midwest had national and global influence, um, was brought to attention. Their board had been dealing with it for a number of years, felt there was nothing to it, but then an article was written in the Chicago Tribune and it blew up to a whole new level and some other kind of accusations now at hand. And for whatever reason, I've clung to this particular one right here. I just want to be charitable, charitable and believe innocence. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judge others in the same manner you would have them judge you. I want everybody else in my life that's around me to be quick to believe in innocence. That's something that's supposed to be true of our court of law, right? Innocent until proven guilty. Guess what happens with social media now? You are guilty because of one post. Be charitably thorough and slow to pronounce guilt. Same kind of stream of thought. Be charitably redemptive, restore the person. It's for the sake of restoring them, even seeing them come into wholeness by which you would ever bring anything up to an individual that was even perceived as judging. And then be charitably silent, if at all possible, avoiding gossip. Those are four key ways to judge correctly. To judge correctly. I'm going through these things pretty quick. It's all right. You can get them online. It's usually a PDF file for these. Let me close by saying this. When it comes to judging others, let's just start right where Psalm 139, verse 23 pleads. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Before we get on our high hobby horse of condemning somebody, let's take the planks out of our own eye. Problem is, a lot of times we don't know the planks that are sticking in our own eyes. Ask God to search your heart to know you. Is there any offensive way in me? The statement of Jesus, shocking statement of Jesus, do not judge lest you be judged. Doesn't have to do what others are treating to you. It has to do with how you are treating others. And it begins, the change begins by focusing in your own life. Judge others in the same manner as you would want to be judged. There is a judge. Jesus is the judge. You can't get away from that. All wrongs will be made right someday. I entertain God's conviction in my life. Lord, show me my offensive ways. How do I need to change? And then as he's changing my heart, it gives me a tenderness to deal with others who have fallen. It's our disposition as believers. Jesus was calling out the hypocrites. Our world is calling out Christians who are hypocrites. And I believe the Spirit today would call you out if you're being a hypocrite in your judgment of others, but you yourself have not found your way to relinquishing and turning over something to God that he wants you to change. I close with this Ravi Zacharias quote. If truth is not undergirded by love, it makes the possessor of that truth obnoxious and the truth repulsive. This current that we're caught in, we need to stand for truth. But when we stand for truth, it has to be undergirded by love. And if it's not, 
It means that you will be obnoxious to those other people. And the truth you're trying to present will be repulsive. Jesus was telling them to undergird with love all their discernment in life and not be a hypocrite. Amen? Amen. Joe, would you come? We're going to close with that song, that new song he taught us there. It's because